Hi again, this is Shivaraman from Johns Hopkins University. So why don't we conclude our survey of small bowel inflammation by talking about inflammatory bowel disease, which when you're talking about the small bowel, you're really discussing Crohn's disease. Now Crohn's disease is a transmural inflammatory bowel disease that affects a large number of Americans and Europeans every year, somewhere in the order of 1.5 million. Unfortunately, clinical and laboratory markers are relatively nonspecific, and this is a diagnosis that's difficult to make short of doing either a biopsy or using a CT scan. And it is a diagnosis that's important. New drugs are increasingly efficacious, TNF-alpha inhibitors, steroids, salicylic acids. So this is a diagnosis that you want to be able to make accurately based on imaging. Now, CT enterography is actually a great test for making this diagnosis. It is at least as good as small bowel capsule endoscopy in making the diagnosis. And unlike a capsule, which is difficult or impossible to use in patients with strictures, CT enterography really has no contraindications. And I would argue that any patient with suspected Crohn's disease, before they go on to get an invasive test like a capsule, should get a CT enterography first to make sure that they don't have major complications that might preclude them getting the capsule. Now, Crohn's disease can involve any part of the GI tract extending from the mouth to the anus. In the earliest phases of involvement, you're just going to see subtle hyperemia, and that's going to be most prominent on the arterial phase images, and you may not see bowel wall thickening at all. As it goes on and as the inflammation gets more and more severe, you start to see frank bowel wall thickening with mucosal hyperemia. You see it not only in the arterial phase images, but on the venous phase images as well. And you start to see mural stratification with hypodense submucosal edema and serosal hyperemia. Now, classically, Crohn's disease is most likely to involve the distal small bowel. Notice in this example, there is dramatic thickening of maybe about a 15-centimeter segment of distal small bowel going to the terminal ileum with dramatic mucosal hyperemia and significant engorgement of the vasa recta. That's a classic distribution of Crohn's. Now, as I mentioned, one of the reasons why I think dual-phase technique is so helpful when you're trying to image a patient with Crohn's disease is that in the earliest phases of the disease, you may not see bowel wall thickening, and you may just see very subtle mucosal hyper... You may see very subtle engorgement of the vasa recta and mesenteric hyperemia that is only going to be appreciable on the arterial phase. And here's an example of that. This is a patient where the venous phase images look totally normal, and if you looked at the bowel on the arterial phase, it looked pretty normal as well. But using MIP reconstructions, 3D vascular reconstruction techniques, you can see that there is very subtle engorgement of the vasa recta going to the right lower quadrant. Mesenteric hyperemia can precede signs of overt bowel wall thickening, and so that's one of the reasons why I really recommend utilizing dual-phase technique, and more than that, utilizing 3D reconstructions as part of your daily routine practice. Now, just as you get relatively consistent findings in the acute setting, there are also a, a series of relatively consistent findings that you can expect in the chronic setting, and these are patients who have had multiple repetitive bouts of bowel inflammation. Over time, as a result of that inflammation, you're going to see deposition of fat within the wall of the bowel, so-called intramural fat deposition. The bowel that's involved will lose its normal fold pattern. You may see ahaustral bowel in the colon in particular, loss of those normal folds. You can see strictures, and you have to be on the lookout for evidence of frank obstruction because strictures, after all, will preclude the patient getting a capsule endoscopy. Now, you may not always see it on a CT scan, but sometimes you'll see pseudosacculations along the mesenteric border of the bowel, probably secondary to asymmetric fibrosis. So here's an example of a patient who has creeping fat and intramural fat deposition. Notice how there's diffuse submucosal or intramural fat throughout the colon and rectum, suggesting that this patient has had repetitive, multiple bouts of colonic inflammation. Now, I will warn you, 
While this can be seen in the setting of chronic repetitive inflammation, it can also be associated with patients who have diabetes or severe obesity. So it's not always going to be, every time you see this, you can't necessarily jump to the diagnosis of Crohn's or inflammatory bowel disease. Here's another example, this time in a patient who has a chronic stricture as a result of prior Crohn's disease. Now, notice the lack of significant hyperenhancement or hyperemia at this site, suggesting that it's likely chronic. But that being said, I, do, I, will know, I will admit that it can be very difficult in many cases to be certain whether you're dealing with an acute or a chronic stricture. Now, once you've made the diagnosis of acute or chronic bowel inflammation, the next step is to look for any one of a number of common complications that may result from the patient's inflammatory bowel disease. Crohn's disease is very often associated with fistulas, and about a third of all patients will develop a fistula within a decade of symptom onset. And the most common location for developing perianal fistulas is uh, developing fistulas is going to be the perianal region. Now, the most uh, sensitive signs of a fistula on a CT scan, of course, are going to be directly seeing a fistula's track between one bowel loop and another. And if you see that, it's not going to be difficult. And if you're really lucky, you're going to see contrast going from one loop to another. But I will point out that you have to be able to make the diagnosis of a fistula based on secondary findings as well. You may not necessarily see the fistula's tract, but in many cases, if I see multiple tethered um, radiating loops coming towards a central point with a topic gas, stranding, density, and spiculation of those bowel loops, then I'm going to be able to make the diagnosis of complex fistulizing Crohn's disease, even if I don't necessarily see the fistulous tract itself. Now, it goes without saying, if you're worried about a fistula, it is helpful to give positive oral contrast. Now, let me also note that Perianal fistulas are the most common location, and while you may be able to surmise the presence of a perianal fistula based on stranding, edema, or fluid in the perianal region, MRI is actually a better test for really delineating the presence of a perianal fistula. Now, as I mentioned, the best way to make this diagnosis, or the most specific way, is if you see a discrete fistulous tract. And oftentimes, these tracts can be best appreciated on volume-rendered or MIP images. Here are a couple examples, right? Not exactly diagnostic dilemmas, thickened inflamed bowel loops. There's clearly a fistulous tract in both cases connecting different small and large bowel loops, and so these are entroenteric and entrocolonic fistulas. But what you be, really need to be able to do is make the diagnosis when you don't see a fistulous tract, because complex fistulizing Crohn's disease without a discrete tract on a CT scan is far more common in clinical practice. So in these examples, notice, or in this example, notice how all of these bowel loops are inflamed, they're tethered, they're radiating towards the point, you see a topic gas right at the center, and there's lots of edema, stranding, and inflammation interspersed amongst those bowel loops. When I see those bowel loops speculated towards a central point of ectopic gas, as in this case, regardless of whether I see the actual fistulous tract or not, I'm going to make the diagnosis of complex fistulizing Crohn's disease, and in this case, multiple discrete entroenteric fistulas. Now, you don't necessarily have to have a fistula just with the small bowel or the large bowel. You can have fistulas with other organs or structures as well, and I'd say one of the most common of those is going to be an entrovesicular fistula. And in this case, you see markedly thickened, markedly hyperemic, and inflamed small bowel. It's directly adjacent to the bladder. And notice that at the site of contact between the bladder and the small bowel, the bladder is markedly thickened, dramatically hyperemic, and there's a loss of the intervening fat plane. Now, there are some people who won't make the diagnosis of an entrovesicular fistula unless they see a discrete tract. So they want to see a direct air or fluid-filled tract going between the bladder and the adjacent bowel. But in my experience, I'll tell you, that is quite rare. And if you 
are that stringent about making the diagnosis, you're going to miss quite a few cases. As far as I'm concerned, if I see a patient with thickened inflamed bowel, there's a loss of fat plane between the bowel and the adjacent bladder, and the bladder looks focally thickened and focally inflamed at the site of contact, even if I don't see ectopic gas within the bladder, I'm at least going to raise the possibility that there may be an intravesicular fistula. So, in conclusion, hopefully over the course of this four-part lecture, I've given you a sense for how critical it is to have proper CT technique in order to appropriately evaluate small bowel wall enhancement and small bowel wall thickening. Many of the diagnoses that I've talked about during the course of this lecture would have been very difficult with inappropriate technique. If you're going to do these studies and you're trying to evaluate the small bowel, you really have to use volumen, not a positive oral contrast agent. And I would recommend going to ctsus.com and taking a look at some of the enterography protocols that Dr. Fisherman's put together. Second, as I've tried to show you, there is a substantial overlap in the imaging appearances of many of the disorders that I've talked about. So in point of fact, you may not be able to make a specific diagnosis purely based on the imaging features alone, and you have to take into account the patient's clinical history in order to provide a smaller differential diagnosis or even a specific diagnosis. In, at some point, there's nothing wrong with providing a useful short differential diagnosis rather than trying to guess and provide a more specific one. Third, always be thinking about bowel ischemia. I've always been worried about this diagnosis. I'm always scared of missing this diagnosis because this is a diagnosis, if missed, that can really result in a patient's death. So anytime you're confronted with abnormal small bowel, make sure you're at least thinking about the possibility of bowel ischemia and make sure that you carefully evaluate both the SMA and the SMV in every single patient who presents with acute abdominal pain. So that's it. So until next time, this is Shiva Raman from Johns Hopkins University. Thanks a lot.